0: Today we're going to start a two-part lesson on God's will. Uh, the first part, we just call it God's will, live it out. Uh, and it's going to be based on Romans 12.1. Next week we're going to finish it with Romans 12.2, which are going to be the results. So we kind of, Paul gives us this charge. Uh, he gives us this uh, urging, this plea, for us to offer our lives. And then if we do that there's certain results that come about we're going to study those next week. So let's read this verse and as I do I want you to think about it. This is probably my favorite um, it's probably my favorite little passage because of the implications. Every word is important. And if you think about it apply it in the lives that has the opportunity to impact you powerfully. So as I read this, let's think about it. Think about every single word and how it applies. Uh, Paul's writing to believers in Rome, and he says, here at the start of chapter 12, therefore, which if you uh, have ever looked at any Bible study stuff, therefore is always a summary statement. He's summarizing something. We're going to talk about what that is in a minute. But Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And we're not going to talk about the rest of this week, but next week we will. Because he says, And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is a powerful lesson because it deals with God's will, not just his general will for humanity. Uh, But specifically, it has direct implications and inferences for you. People always want to know, what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to be doing? Well, Scripture gives us some direct things. We know that like in 1 Thessalonians, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, that makes sense. It's God's will for me to abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, We know that earlier in Romans, he said that it's God's will that believers become conformed to the image of Christ, that we all grow and mature to what more and more like Christ. And here, he says that there's basically a general will, so that you may prove what the will of God is. So as we start this study, think about how it impacts God's will for your life. Um, because this whole entire series of lessons is what? It's based on, or it's a focus on our, it's our identity. So, who you are in Christ defines your person, your entity. You're more than a body. Right? You have a soul. You, have, you are spiritually alive. You're in Christ. We're children of God. And He's given us a new life. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us gifts to serve, which we saw last week. This is all part of what makes you you. That's the knowledge and understanding of who you are. Now, what are you going to do with it? That's the phase that we're going to focus on for the next four lessons. We have this one today, and then three more. Now that you know who you are, now that you know what you're up against, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you know what God's giving you as a provision to be able to face those things, what are you going to do with it? Well, he tells us here, uh, he urges us, he begs us, by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So let's see. I kind of just did a review just now, so we'll skip that part. And we'll go down to God's desire for the believed. So in light of these truths, and everything that we just talked about, your identity, the things that uh, have gone away, the new things that have come, what you're made of, how we're going to stand firm and be alert against Satan and his schemes, how we're going to overcome and have victory against the flesh, how we're going to be a light amidst this crooked and perverse generation, this fallen world system. We consider all that. And so in light of these truths, what is our role as believers? Where do we stand? What are we supposed to do? Make That's it. That's the, that is the baseline uh, commission. That's the great commission. All believers are supposed to make disciples. And so how do we align our will with God's will for our lives? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered whether or not what you want and what your thoughts and intentions are for your life match what God wants for you? That's a really an important thing to consider. If your will and your intentions in your life aren't what God wants for you, what do you think is gonna happen? What are the results of that? What are the results of your will not matching God's? Function the road. Okay. So what do you mean by that, Russ? Um rough to thank get rough. Um uh, there could be some disciplinary actions due to, to this. Could be either one. Both uh, both of those are true. It, uh, you know, maybe that Might sit- be a little hard. Yeah. Okay. I agree with that. Um, I mean, although sometimes the yards, it's harder it's, it's, hard hard okay. no, it's harder. Yeah. Uh, what, what What did you say, Paige? Yeah. So discipline yeah, so is harder. It you to be like uh, feeling. Fulfilled and purposeful. And yeah. if you're not doing what you're designed to do, you're not going to be as happy as happy you would be you. if you were. Uh, and, and content and fulfilled. Or feel like you've got a purpose that you're putting towards. Bingo. We've already seen in this. So Kevin said that there's a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction in who you are as a person and the work that you're doing in this life. Because we've seen from other lessons that if you're not aligned with God's will, whose will are you aligned with? Yeah. One or the other. Ones. It's Satan. It. It's, it's, this isn't a scale. Of sometimes I'm over here more like God, and sometimes over here more like Satan. It's either or. We're either aligned with God's will, or we're aligned with Satan's or the world's, or however, you know, remember when we talked about the world system and we saw with Peter when Peter's intentions were focused on himself, and they weren't considered what Jesus was doing, he told Peter, he said, get behind me. You're setting your marriage on man's interest, not mine. And the same is somewhat true here. You so you think he would learn from that? No, because then he's thinking the water. Right. It's the same thing. Well, we, we would have probably all done the same. So, if God's will is important, and it is, how do we know what it is for our life? So today we're going to examine Romans 12, 1 and two in an effort to answer these questions. Uh, this passage is the sum result of what we studied up to this point. So identity, who we are in Christ, now what are we going to do with it? So it's the sum of what we studied up to this point, and it's the bridge that's going to connect us to other passages that show us how to live in practical application. Uh, so another way to say this is that we're finishing up on what we are to do, and why we are to do it so that we can spend the rest of the series on how. Like with our actions and our attitudes. How we can live that. So let me read it one more time. And then we're going to break it down. Paul starts here in chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. The therefore suggests the summary statement. The urging. Who's the urging? <laughs> Believers. <laughs> this isn't for unbelievers. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies... Not your life. A lot of times people say life here, but Paul's talking about actually putting your physical self into service. Present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we're going to see here in just a second, this translation is a little wonky. I'm interested to hear what some of your other translations are. But if you look at the Greek word here, uh, this path, if you look at this in the Greek, it starts to make a lot uh, it gives you, it gives you a lot more clarity because this trans this translation is kind of weird to be Don't be conformed to this world, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's talk about the therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, yes, what is it? Therefore, Paul is summarizing. Uh, one of the questions that you have to answer as you study this is how far back is he so? Is he summarizing what he said in chapter 11 or is it greater than that? And my answer is, I think it's greater than that. I think that every single thing that he's written in Romans up to this point is now coming to life. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul makes the point that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. For all his sins, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. There's no partiality, it says in chapter Uh, In chapters 4 and 5, he says that we're justified by faith. faith. So we're all sinners and we need a Savior, 1, 2, and 3. 4 and 5, a man is justified by their faith in Christ. And because of that, we have peace with God. That's how he starts out chapter 5. And then as we've seen in this lesson, or this series of lessons, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he deals with the Christian life. The fact that we now identify with Christ, that we died and risen, and we're going to get to this here in just a second, uh, into the and fill them ways. Uh, and then one of the most confusing parts of Romans is chapters 19 and 11, which deals with Israel past, present, and future. He's dealing directly with the nation of Israel in 19 and 11. And then, here we get, and then he gets here to 12, where he says, therefore. So... Let's talk about it. Number one, everyone is a and in need of a Okay, that's straightforward. For all who've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a problem, isn't it? Because what is the result of that sin? Yeah, separation. He's going to talk about that later in chapter 6. Then in Romans 4 and 5, he deals with we have eternal life we have eternal life we're justified is the way he says it but we have eternal life by faith in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ not by our works not by our works I put Romans 4-5 there. parentheses it's a great verse to understand for me it was a linchpin in helping me understand uh, truly what it means to believe in Jesus uh, for eternal life and that our works are a part of that Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes, his faith is credited as righteousness. So anytime that you ask somebody, or there's somebody that says that you have to do something to gain your eternal life, or to prove you're saved, or anybody that says, well, is not believing a work? It's not. Romans 4, 5 says, It contrasts the two, but it's always a contrast. Okay? But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is greater than his righteousness. So three, we are at peace with God through faith. Okay, we're at peace with God. Do you remember like in lesson one or two when we talked about we came into this world dead in trespasses and sins, and because of that we stood hostile to God? We were his enemy, literally we stood as enemies of God. Not anymore. Once you put your faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, this is the No of Life verse. We have died and risen with Jesus to a new life. We have died and risen with Jesus to a new life. Let's do a quick summary of that, because that's that's game-packed with information. Have we really died? Somebody, I mean, it's important to understand this concept. It's a deep concept, but let's talk about it. You guys are all still alive. You started this class, and then you were alive. Spiritual? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in what part of us died? Our the old self, our old self, our old flesh was crucified on the cross, is what it says in the in scripture. So, the chains of the flesh are broken. <clears throat> Your old self has died. The old sin nature still exists in you, but its dominance and its bonds with you are on you have been broken. And we've risen to this new life with Christ. Okay, this is, in theology, our Christian life, or the main word is sanctification. It's the present tense, current experience that we are all going through. You are all physically alive, uh, but your old self has died. You died to sin and rise again to the Lord. Does that mean you stop sinning? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, no. It doesn't. That's Paul's whole point in chapter 6. He said because you've died to sin and because you've risen to new life, you can stop it. Or you don't have to obey the lusts of the flesh. He says don't present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. It present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and present your, your uh, members or the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. The problem is, is we don't do that a lot of times. And a lot of Christians don't. And so what happens, full circle moment, back to what Kevin said earlier, if we don't live out who we are, we're not fulfilled. We're not satisfied because we were created, literally, we're new creatures, we're new creations, created for a different purpose. And so when our will in this life as believers doesn't match that, there's something that's always going to be empty. There's always going to be a void. There's something that's always going to be off. There's something that's always going to be harder. It could be a wrong perspective. But whatever it is, when we don't accept that charge, it's going to to be weird. We're going to be less effective in the body. Uh, It's not going to feel better. It doesn't. I can say it as somebody who's been there. And is sometimes still there. But in Romans 7 and 8, we are to present ourselves to God, not to our flesh. We present ourselves to God, not to our flesh. That's just one word. Therefore, okay? So now we understand what Romans has been about up to this point. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. That is in the person of Jesus. By faith in Him, we're justified. Now we're at peace with God. We've died and risen to a new life. And we're supposed to present ourselves in these bodies to God. We didn't deal with Romans 9, 10 or 11 because that deals directly with Israel, past, present, and future. So here in chapter 12, therefore, He's going to continue on that theme of presenting ourselves to God. He says, I urge you brethren." Therefore, I urge you, He isn't writing to unbelievers about eternal life salvation. He's not writing to unbelievers about what they have to do to earn it. He's already established in chapters 3 and 4, Romans that eternal life salvation is by faith in Christ. So the word urge here, uh, used by Paul, is translated or transliterated parakalea. You can see here that I have it written, and it's taken from two words para, which means close beside, and kaleo, which means to call. And it has the idea of personally calling someone, or calling someone who's beside you. It's sometimes translated in scriptures as appeal, or encourage, or treat, or plead, or beg. In the context that Paul's using it here, it's clear that it's more than a request. Okay? Uh, The point of the word is that it's it's being used as emphasis or to emphasize the importance on the statement that he's going back to lead to believers. Uh, This passage is written for believers. That's an important thing to note. You don't emphasize offering your lives as a sacrifice to unbelievers. Does that make sense? So when you are in public and you hear a pastor or you hear a preacher or you hear somebody trying to tell unbelievers, that they need to offer their lives as a sacrifice, is that going to serve right to an unbeliever? <laughs> They're going to say, nope, no thanks. That wouldn't make any sense to them. It's going to turn them off. To believers, it's something different. There is an emphasis of importance on the statement he's about to make to these believers. And I think he chose this word carefully, this parakoleo. Because as I mentioned, it comes off as more of a suggestion, but less than a command. Uh, the statement that Paul's about to make, he's actually already commanded. Remember back in chapter 6 when he, he told us to offer our lives, he says, don't present yourselves to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. So even though here it's not a command, he's already commanded. Now he's begging or he's pleading. He's saying, uh, God wants you to do this, not just because you're commanded to, but because he wants you to do this. And that's when our desire matches His desires for us. That's when our will matches God's will for our lives. When we get to a point where we say, I want my life to count for Christ. I want to do what you want me to do, no matter what that is. Then you're able to be an effective uh, servant of God. But He tells us something here He gives us some motivation. Therefore, based on everything I said, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, by the mercies of God. What in the world does that mean? Do you think that's a figure of speech? Or do you think that he's actually talking about literal mercies of God? Okay, so let's listen. What are some mercies of God? How about salvation? Forgiveness. Eternal life salvation. Forgiveness. Uh, What did somebody else say? It was good grace. What else? <clears throat> what is the greatest how do we how do we our life? how do we how do we how do we faith faith in who Christ did Jesus oh, okay yeah he gave his son <coughs> hey that's a huge difference not just that Jesus so think about this how long how long did God exist before Jesus became a man Eternity, past. We can't comprehend that, but it's true. How long did Jesus exist before he became a man? Same amount of time. Same amount of time. Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit existed from eternity past. At a point in time, Jesus humbled himself to become a man. That is both grace and mercy. Not just a man. But a monster, right? He came to literally give himself up for us. For the Son of Man, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In where it says in Mark 10, that's grace, that's mercy. Romans five eight, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we stood in opposition to God, Christ died for us. That's grace. That's mercy. He did what we couldn't do. He died in our place, taking on our sin, uh, dying a cruel, hard death uh, on the cross. This list can go on and on. All the stuff that he's done and given to us and for us. Those are all graces and those are all mercies. So let's think about it. When you think about mercy, think about it this way. These are some general definitions. They don't always play out, but it's just a good mnemonic device to remember. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So that first box is grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's unmerited faith. Jesus is the ultimate example of grace. And I think that's what he means in Titus 2 when he says, For the grace of God has appeared to all, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny godliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly. Jesus is that grace. The grace of God has appeared. And because he's done what he's done, we can now have eternal life. We don't deserve that. It's unmerited. We stand in opposition to God as unbelievers. And to contrast uh, this is mercy. So if grace is getting what we don't deserve, think of mercy as not getting what you do deserve. What does somebody who stands in opposition to God deserve? They do. They deserve death. They deserve instant annihilation. Does that happen? No. No. God is long-suffering. He's gracious and He's merciful. He gives people a chance. And another one. And another another, one. And another one. And another one. And this isn't just unbelievers. Is God merciful to unbelievers? Or to I said it's, I meant to say it's not just for unbelievers. But what about believers? Is God merciful and gracious to us? Does He give us a chance to confess? He does. I mean, in Genesis we see it right out of the back. When He comes to the garden and he's at, He says, "Where are you?" He knows where they're at. And he says, "What have you done?" It gives them a chance to confess but they don't. Same thing with Cain and Abel. I think God was gracious and merciful to Cain. Cain committed the first murder in Scripture. What could God have done? Struck him down. Struck him down. What is he asking him to do? He says, where's your brother? Does God know where his brother is? Mm-hmm. What's he giving him a chance to do? Okay. And then when Cain got smart with God, and said, I'm not my brother's keeper. He just killed him. Think about the guts of this guy. <laughs> Literally talking to God and saying, he's my brother. I'm not, my, I'm not his keeper. God could have, and we might even say should have, and dealt with that. But he's gracious, and he's merciful. And when he delivered his punishment to Cain, did Cain ever complain about that? He did. He said, It's too great. Your punishment is too great for me to bear. He said, If you cast me from the garden, I'm going to get killed. And so, what God did? Protected him. He put a mark on Cain so that Cain could live. People don't think about that, but that is grace. He didn't deserve that. That's mercy. He didn't get what he deserved. Even to somebody like Cain. God is gracious, and He's merciful. And if He's like that to somebody who, uh, (laughs) I say, we do the exact same thing, who stands up to God and is a smart aleck to God, we do the same thing when we sin knowingly, when we say, I know what I want, and I know it's against what you want for me, I'm going to do it anyway. We do the exact same thing. God is gracious, and He's merciful. Uh, not just in these huge things, but also in the little things in our life. So Paul says, therefore, based on all this stuff I've talked about, I'm begging you. I've already commanded you, but now I'm begging you to do it because you want to do it. By the mercies of God, because of what He's done for us, offer your lives to Him, or offer your bodies to Him. I skipped this. I want to show this real quick. Mercy, the actual definition of mercy... Is compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to God's power? <laughs> or to, to one's power. I said God's power because we're all subject to God's power. And He shows compassion, He shows forbearance. The second definition is tre- compassionate treatment of those in distress. You think about movies where somebody are asking the kings for mercy. Show me mercy, show me mercy, my Lord, show me mercy. And so I asked this question. Yeah, right. there is a caveat to this. That since I I think I wrote this in 2015, and 2016, I do have more But what do we deserve? Yeah, yeah. We do, because we're all sinners. All right. Are we entitled to anything? No. Yeah. We are. Yeah. And and, and this is where the caviar comes in, on page 7. The reason I ask this question, are we entitled to anything, is because for the last 15 years on campus, I've watched generations and generations come up and they're not the same as they used to be. They would answer that question differently. They would say they are entitled. And even if they don't say it with their mouths, they say it with their eyes. They think that they're entitled to stuff, because that's what our culture, society is talking. And the fact of the matter is, is nobody owes them anything. No matter how bad your life was growing up, no matter how great your life is today, it doesn't matter. You're not owed anything, except for God's promises. You are only owed what God promised. And so, as our identity, it's important, or as part of our identity, we ought to know what God's promises are. What are some of the things that He's promised us? He promised us eternal life, and the hope of eternal life, which God promised long ages ago. That's what it says in Titus four. He has promised us eternal life. And where is that life? How do we obtain it? We obtain it by faith. It could be in the new heaven or the new right. earth. Right. So we get eternal life by faith, or even on this earth for us, we can live eternal <coughs> life. Peter. We have it now, and we can live like it now. And so, this life is in His Son, Jesus. And guess what? We're in His Son. But I put this verse in here because it's important for us to understand when we start to get self-righteous. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And even our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Romans 30. What then? Are we better than they? Talk about Jews and Gentiles. Not all. Not at all. We've already charged with Jews and Greeks. are all sinful. They're all understanding. As it was written, there's none righteous. No, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside to get away and become useless. There's none who does give you're not owed anything. Because at, our, at the core of who we were as individuals before believers, we're about as right as of us Sir, I already talked about 5 If God demonstrates His love towards us in that one. we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's mercy. That is mercy. We're not getting what we did deserve, which was death. Instead, we had a provision. When we stood in opposition to God, I know I've got my coat on, but is anybody else on is it cold? No. Oh, cold. No, it is not. She is. So, so I wrote this. to so, said, this is mercy. And God gave me, showed his love towards us through Jesus. He'll someday give us rewards for what we do here on earth. Okay? We can only do those things in the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the opportunities to serve. And then someday He's going to reward us for the things He's given us the ability to do by the opportunities that He provides instead of making us pay for our sin. That's mercy. That's a lot of theological stuff in that little paragraph, and I want to talk about it for a second. Will we ever have to pay for our sin? Will sin ever be brought to account? No. It won't? I thought we were going to stand before him and give an account of what we've done in this body. For our remorse. Okay. So, what about our sin? We're clean. Yeah. I, have, I have the greatest lawyer in the world. That's exactly right. It says Jesus is our advocate, He's making intercession for us always. And we have uh, this awesome mercy that God has shown us in that Jesus paid for the sin by His death, and then we get forgiveness for that sin by faith. That's a great mercy. And just like it says in John 3, we're never going to be condemned. We'll never be judged and found guilty because of our sin. That is a huge mercy. That's grace. We don't deserve that. Because of God's mercies, Paul urges us to offer our lives as sacrifices. Okay. Is there a verse there where he says he, God does not remember our sins? Yeah, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't bring it to his memory. Yeah. He's electric, like a bird. He doesn't bring it to him. Yeah, that's awesome. So she said that he doesn't remember, he doesn't take our sin to, into the camp. From an eternal life aspect, that is so true. And it's good. That is grace and that's mercy for us. Because we've all messed up. At varying levels, by the way. And that's difficult for some people to swallow for self righteous people who have lived a pretty good and clean and holy life. They don't like it that somebody who has done horrible and awful things has the same access to heaven as they did. Or to the kingdom as they did. But that's the case. Will there be liars in the kingdom? You don't think so? You don't think that in the thousand year reign of Christ, that liars will be there? Liars? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. okay. What about murders? No. Yeah. What about adulterers? <coughs> Not in heaven. You don't think so? Maybe during the well, thousand year reign here on earth, yeah, it's going to be a big war here. Okay. Who's going to be reigning under Jesus? We will. Who specifically will be his number two? Mm-hmm. Who? Mm-hmm. David. David. Was David a liar? Was David a murderer? Yeah, an adulterer. Was David an adulterer? That is reassuring. Because he's a pretty bad dude, but yet he's still a person that's described as a man after God's own heart. And he's a man that wrote all the songs, or not all of them, but a lot of the songs. And he was a man who was a man's man. It doesn't matter what type of dude you are, if you're a warrior, David was a warrior. If you're a poet, David was a poet. David did it all. And he's relatable to us in that way. But yet, he murdered. And he gave into his flesh. And he took Bathsheba, somebody else's wife, one of his mighty men's wives. And he killed him. And so, the thousand year reign of Christ, after the rapture, the church is taken up. We are all going to get to serve. We all have an opportunity to take part in that kingdom. And what we do in this life is going to impact that thousand-year reign, at least, and help with an eternal state. That's merciful. Because we don't deserve it. We don't. So, he says, "...to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice." And I asked, does this look familiar? Or I, I maybe I just have to ask you. It should, because the first whole part of this series dealt with Romans 6, where he says, Don't let sin reign in your whole body so that you obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your body and its members as instruments of righteousness to God. He's saying the exact same thing that he said six chapters earlier. He just wants us to do it because we want to do it. It's like Brandy's always wanting me to do all this stuff, not because I want to do it, you know, or not because she wants me to do it, but because I should want to do the dishes. And I should want to do the it. Longer. That's hard, especially when we first got married. It's, it's interesting how much I find myself wanting to do that as I get older. But it's kind of the same thing with our spiritual maturity as believers. He wants us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to Him because we want to do it. That's spiritual growth and that's spiritual maturity. Alright, so, and i put it here, you can, I'll put it on the ears more than going read it to you. And it's to say, Paul's urging Christians to present their lives in service to God based on what he's done, which we've talked about. Uh, and that's the charge. That's what he's asking. That's what he's begging or pleading us to do. It's God's desire for us to pose. It. Uh, it's this desire that he was emphasizing as important. He's urging it. Uh, it's hard for people to apply because it implies loss. Does it imply loss? Loss of what? Resources. Perfect. That's hard sacrifice me is implying loss to offer yourself as a sacrifice to put your body into service means you're not using your body for other stuff mostly what you want to do that's hard and most people don't want to take that step even when you present them with the truth of it i can say that openly because that was me it was a long time even though i was taught this and understood it in my brain i still didn't want to engage with it because i was like that means I'm not going to get to do this. Or that means I'm not going to get to that. do that. Or maybe I'm not going to get to go to OSU football games anymore. Or maybe I'm not going to get to play video games anymore. Or maybe I'm going to have to give this up or give that up. And it's funny how looking back, those things all still have a pool, by the way. They all still draw me to do those things. But they're less than Because God is changing my design and changing my understanding and perspective as that happens. It implies that we have laid aside all of those distractions, all of our pride, all of the fleshly and fools, anything that can take priority over the world, and we submit ourselves to His service. As we're going to see, because that's God's will. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be begging He wouldn't be urging us to do it. He wants us to do it. He wants us to want to do it. We're to offer our lives as living sacrifices and lovingly serve out of gratitude for what He has done for us. We make a decision for our lives to care for things, J.D. always says. We deny ourselves and our desires for the sake of God and His desires. When that's done, our will and desires begin to align with God's wills and His desires for us. Let's see what uh, Jesus has to say about it here in Mark 8. I want to get a little better right here. So, well, we'll read it a little bit. So, Mark 8, 34. He to his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world for the his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with the Father and his holy angels. We'll fill in the place and talk about it. To offer yourself as a sacrifice costs you now. Does that make sense to you? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. To offer yourself as a sacrifice costs you now. And to offer yourself as a sacrifice rewards you later. Okay? To offer yourself as a sacrifice rewards you later. Does anybody have any questions about anything that we've talked about so far? Does that make sense to you? Does anybody disagree with that? Okay. Here's the reward part. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who is going to? All Every person? Every believer. Every believer. For we must have all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may be recompensed. What in the world does that word mean? Yeah, given back or rewarded. So that each one may be given back and rewarded for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay. Just as sure, I say this all the time, Bro, it needs to reach you and home in other way. Just as sure as you're sitting in this room, engaging in this conversation right now, you will stand in front of Jesus Christ. That's weird to think about, but you're going to look him in the eye, and you're going to give an account of your life now. That's motivating in and of itself, even above and beyond what he's <coughs> done for us in this moment. I bet you we start thinking about what he's done for us. And in that moment, what's it going to be like? You know, is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? And he killed it. You gave up what you wanted on earth for my sake. That's well done. Or I'm afraid because I'm forty-two and I know that probably about half of my life I've been done. That's gonna be shameful for me. It will. I'll be ashamed at that time of my life. All right, but hopefully y'all hear him say well done good and faithful servant. Because I've given I have partially, not all whole way, but I've given up time and effort, energy, emotion and resources or whatever things Paige said. For his sake. And so, it, when you understand that, you understand why Paul emphasized it. Paul got this. Keep in mind, he was discipled directly by Jesus. He had seen it all. He would heard it all. He knew how this thing ends. And he knew how we were going to get there. With that knowledge in mind, Paul urges you, I beg you, by the mercies of God, to offer your lives as a living, holy sacrifice if we don't hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, I can just see Paul sitting there and say, I told you. I told you. I begged you. I urged you to do it for this reason. And I promise you that in that moment, I'm not going to care about video games. I'm not going to care about OSU football. I'm not going to care about any of that stuff. So how do I align my mindset today, now, here on this earth with what God wants for me? Because those people who have great service positions in the kingdom going to be the people that he already knows serve faithfully here on this earth. Or it's going to still be on this earth, but in this life. So I want you to I ask this question in the instant application moment. What does this look like for you in your life? How can you sacrifice and serve for Christ? And I remember writing this, being so convicted, I'm like, I don't know how I'm gonna teach this, and not just ask everybody to pack it in and go be missionaries. Because that's what it feels like. I'm like, if what I'm saying is true, and what we're talking about, what I'm writing is true, then what are we doing? If it's true, and all this is a sideshow created by the world to distract us, then how in the world can I sit here and not just pack it in and go be a missionary? Why wouldn't I just go become a pastor or a teacher somewhere? The truth of the matter is, we looked at it last week. What did God give each and every one of us? He gave you a gift. What is that gift for? It's to employ it in service of the body. Because there are other people who are doing life who aren't ever going to pack it in and become missionaries, who aren't ever going to be pastors and teachers. We need accountants. We need doctors. We need lawyers. We need oil field workers, we need linemen. We need everything. And those people need the gifts that you have. God didn't give it to you so that you could sit on it. He gave it to you so that you could faithfully employ it as a good steward of His grace in service for Him so that you can impact the lives of those around you. You are a missionary. You don't have to go to Africa to serve God. You don't have to go teach in China To teach the word, you have children, you have relatives, you have co workers, you have friends. Each person in this room leaves, and during the week, we go into our own spheres of influence. That's That's your ministry. And then, guess what? This body has all sorts of programs and services that you can serve in. We have plenty of people who need help behind the scenes. I can point you to the nursery or the children's ministry I would definitely find you a place to serve good. But we have other programs and services in this church that need your gift. And even if this church doesn't offer a program or service that helps you use it to get, it, create it. Create the ministry. Find a place to plug in and use it. And it doesn't have to have the SB on it to be effective. It doesn't have to say still so why. Live? Your ministry can be wherever you're at. Making your life count for Christ can look in many different ways. Didn't we study this verse last week? There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. The varieties of ministries, the same Lord. There's varieties of effects. Making your life count can look many different ways, because It should. Each one of us is given a gift or a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay. Therefore, based on everything that we've talked about, I'm begging you, I'm urging you to offer your bodies based on the mercies of God. I'm begging you to put your bodies in the service. And do it in an acceptable manner. Acceptable to God. And this is where those translations get really kind of weird. Uh, the translation acceptable, at least in the NASB, isn't really very good. The Greek word here is eureston, uh, from the word you, like you think of euphoria, like it's good or well, well or good. And the second word is arexo, meaning pleasing. So it's something well pleasing. Okay, it literally means pleasing to God. Well, it is well-pleasing to God when we offer our lives in service to Him. Okay? When you make the decision to serve Him, you're aligning with God's will. Do you think God's will is well-pleasing to Himself? It is. (laughs) It's good. You can see that in Genesis 2. What does God say after He creates everything? He saw that it was good. Same thing with His will. His will is good. And when we align with it, it's well-pleasing to Him. That's what He wants for His children. We sacrifice our bodies and our desires for Him because of the mercies that He's shown to us, and this is well-pleasing to the Lord. All right, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, one of my favorite verses at every wedding. This is what I lead with. He says to be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk how? Amen. Okay, be imitators of God and walk in love just as those are two very important words just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma a lot of other places where Paul's talking about this he says a well pleasing aroma same thing we just saw how are we supposed to imitate God In this verse? As children. As children, and doing what? Walking in love. How do you characterize that love? In this verse? Because he didn't just tell us to walk in love, he tells us what it looks like. Like Just as Christ loved us, Kevin says. Okay, so what's the. if you're going to characterize the love, if you're supposed to imitate God as beloved children and walk in love, we have to characterize that love. Because he says, just as Christ loved you, Paige said the number one way to characterize Jesus' love is what? Separation. Does this look relevant to our verse today? I urge you, brethren, based on the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy Sacrifice. What are you giving gifts for? To serve. To serve who? Others. To serve God and others. The whole program makes sense. He gives us a gift to serve the body. That's well-pleasing to Him. Because when we do that, the body is effective, which is well-pleasing to Him. When the body is effective, people are drawn to Him. That's well-pleasing to Him. God's a great planner. All he asks of us is faithful participation in his ministry. Sorry, Scott, I know i cool. Alright, what else? How else should we characterize it? We've said the word, read a verse, and you characterize God's love. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do you describe or characterize that type of love? In that while we were yet sinners, while we stood in opposition to Him, He died for us. Merciful. Merciful, gracious. How about? Unconditional. Unconditional. Can you imagine having the ability to love people who oppose you? and hate you, and deny you. Because not only do unbelievers do it, so do we. When we align our will with ourselves and with Satan and the world system, we're lying against God, yet he still loves us with an unconditional, with a sacrificial, through Jesus, unconditional love. And the last thing that I always use with this is he's not messing around. He is determined. Do you think it was hard for Jesus to do what he did? Yeah, he even asked for it to be taken away. It had to be hard. Jesus was scared. If possible, let this come pass from him. We can already know what that means, but it didn't matter. Jesus was anxious about what was coming up. He did it anyway. He knew why he came and what he had to go through. So, what's the application? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Our love for others has to be sacrificial, unconditional, and determined. This because we're giving it up for others. This because frankly people don't deserve it. A lot of times the people in your life don't deserve the type of love that you're supposed to show but we got to show it. And this was for us, because it's not easy to do. Because if we lose sight of the program and the expectations, you're not going to do it. We have to make a determined decision that is so powerful that it impacts us every day, which is what he's going to say in the next verse. He's going to say in order to do this, we're going to have to transform or renew our mind every day. And this is, this is what the type of love that we're supposed to show others uh, looks like. So Ephesians 2 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved. Well, this is a famous verse. We love it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift, not as a result of works that no one may boast. We all know that, but look what he says next. Okay, so that's good. We know that we get justified, eternal life, salvation by our faith. It's not because of our works, but we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Good for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in. It is God's program for us. It is His expectation for us that we put our lives in this service for Him, our bodies in His service for Him. We're supposed to do good works. Not so that we gain eternal life, but so that we can enjoy a well-pleasing life for That's what he says. He says, God prepared it. He predestined that we become conformed to his image. He's prepared the works before him. Created in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, but all new things have come. Here it is. We're created. We're new creatures in Christ. Why? To do the good work. To make disciples. To love other people. To serve for other people. Unconditionally determined. Titus 2.11. We talked about this a little bit already, but I want to read through the whole thing. For the grace of God has appeared. What is that grace? For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all men. Does that mean all men are saved? What does it mean? It means that there is a way of salvation for them. That is gracious, by the way. That is merciful. The grace of God has appeared to bring salvation to all men, instructing us to deny our and worldly desires. We talked about that. And to live how? Sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking in the future, looking for the blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself, why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who is that? It's the church. Yeah, that's us. That's the church. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. And how are they characterized? Zealous for good deeds. Man, It's almost like God planned it for a reason. When somebody puts their faith in Christ, they're a new creature. Nobody, it seems like, these days gets past that. We put ourselves back under the bondage of the flesh, and we never move past that. We put our faith in Jesus the bondage of the flesh is broken so that we can live a life that's well-pleasing to God. So Paul begs us. He says, stop sinning. Stop presenting the body, your members of your body to sin and present yourselves to God. And later he says, I'm begging you to do it. By the mercies of God, because of what He's done for us, put your life into service for Him. Because that's well-pleasing to Him. Because you're created beforehand for good deeds. You're His workmanship created for good works. Everything that God does is for a purpose. And it's for our good and for His glory, by the way. Oh, no. I lost the page. There it is. So it's God's will for us to do good works, not to obtain, to keep, or prove eternal life. That's important, because a lot of people are going to try to tell you that your good works are there so that you know that you're saved or to keep you saved, or to prove that you really believe. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. All believers have eternal life. Present tense, right now. By faith in Christ as Savior, you have eternal life. It's that simple. It's just that many think that the gift of eternal life is the end of the lines we've talked about. It's not the finishing line, it's the starting line. Our sanctification, or our present tense Christian life, the here and now, is a process that includes denying ourselves, walking in love for God and others, and being a person and a group of people zealous for good deeds. This is how we please God. God's love never changes for us. But we can live a life that's pleasing for Him. Okay, so therefore I urge you, brethren, I beg you, based on the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice. Then he says this thing, which is interesting. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is another bad translation. Does anybody have anything else other than the NASB? Well, something says reasonable. It reasonable? In some yeah. yeah, reasonable is the one that I learned, I think, growing up. I think the N I B might say reasonable. It's came yeah. You said just true worship, which is your true worship. Is that a CSB? Uh, Christian uh, it? Okay. You have different? So, my point is, we're going to get through it. So, the word spiritual here is the Greek word logikos. What word do you think we get from logikos? Logical. logical. Reasonable, rational, logical. So, instead of seeing spiritual there, which really is a horrible translation. Read logical, or reasonable, or rational. So, think of it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your logical, or reasonable, or rational service. Doesn't it make sense that because of what Jesus did for us? and because of who we are in Christ, that we offer our lives back into service for Him? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying you should want to do it. If you understand it based on God's mercies, if you understand who you are in Christ, and you understand what He did for you, it's only reasonable, it's only rational, it's only logical that you offer your life back into service for Him. He's literally emphasizing, because remember, I'm urging you, brethren, That the logical act of worship for believers is to make a decision to present ourselves as a sacrifice in service to him based on his mercy that he's freely given us. That's powerful. And convicting. I hope it's convicting. I need conviction. Someday in the eternal life that he's given us, and really even right now, we'll be rewarded for walking in the spirit that he's given to us, by the way. To serve in the opportunities that He's provided for us, using the gifts and talents that He's given us, it's only logical that you know, we make a commitment to offer ourselves back to Him in service. And you know, I just have this question: When you make the decision to sacrifice, I mean, that's it. I mean, if you sat here for this hour and you've considered this and you're looking at it and you're thinking, "Yeah, it makes sense," like right? I think there's some truth there then really we're all at a point of decision. What are we going to do? The sermon is super short and easy. Romans 12.1 exhorts that believers should make a decision to sacrifice their desires and will for God's desires and will because of what God has done for the believers. Does that make sense? So next time you hear this famous verse that is used all the time, by the way you should be able to go back and pick this apart, at least phrase by phrase, if not word by word. Therefore, covering the entire book of your eyes, we're all sinners, we need a Savior, and in peace with God, through Jesus Christ, eternal life, by our faith in Therefore, I urge you, I beg you, by the mercies of God, by all the things that He's done and given to you and for you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Based, and it's only logical that we do so because of what He's done. So, three easy applications. And this is really for everybody. Think, pray, and meditate on the general and specific mercies that God has shown you. If you really start pulling on this string, it doesn't end. Lamentations 3.23 The Lord's loving kindness is indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Every day that you wake up is a mercy from God. Everything that you have, everything that he's given you, everything he's done to you and for you is something that you can thank him for. But when you start to consider that stuff, uh, the logicos, the logical part of us offering our lives back into service for him starts to have a little bit more meaning. Two, this is it, this is the hard part. This is where we lose people. This is where Christianity's lost people in there. Knowing that it will cost your desires, your comforts, your worldly pleasures, consider the logical decision to sacrifice for Christ and begin to align your will with his. Isn't that what this is all about? Isn't that what Paul's getting at? You're new creations. You've been changed. The flesh does not have a bondage over you anymore. You should willingly chain yourself now to Christ and do His will. And when you do that, it's costly. But, in that moment, someday in the future, when we stand before Jesus, you will have zero regrets. There will be zero shame. When you give an account of yourselves for the deeds that you've done in this body, whether good or worthless, you can hold your head up and say, you know what? I'm like Adam. I didn't do it for the first time in many years of my life. But I tried after that. I think you don't ever be ashamed of that stuff. That's a good way to make a decision. There's no regrets. At the end of the day. So do good work for him. Because that's what we were created for. For his workmanship, created for good works. Right? He died to redeem us forever in all of esteem, to purify for himself the people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So let's do good work. He's given us the gift, he's given us the talents, he's given us the abilities, he's given us the opportunities. All we have to do is be faithful to you. That's it. Because he's gonna reward us based on our faithfulness and our service. That's right.